Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Atlas Loom, an exploration of world building for tabletop and beyond. My name is Endeavorance, and with me, as always, is a woman who just gave up her life of content creation to become a full-time lavender farmer. Tell me everything about oh the lavender trade. Listen, lavender lemonade, fucking amazing. Oh. Lavender satchels that you can, satchel, sachets, sachets? Sachets? Is it actually little, pronounced sachet? A little bun I'm gonna sachet. Isn't sachet, that's dancing, right? When you sachet, it's I like think a that's just flourish kind of? Maybe. Oh, okay. Lavender, well, literally anything is so fucking good, dude. I, dude, I had mm. lavender limoncello the other day. Holy fuck. Oh that's my. allowed? It's allowed. It's fucking, it is, it is my new favorite alcohol, which is saying something given how many alcohols I regularly partake in. Yeah, I was gonna say, that's a that's pretty high praise. Now I gotta try this stuff out. It's so good. Hi. Uh, yes, we're here. We're doing a podcast. My name is Diana, better known as Diana the Rose, a TTRPG content creator. Uh, Endeavorance is here as well. We've established this. So here's the thing. Hmm. There is, and I think I've told you this before off the episode, but there is a, um, kind of like this farmer's market in my town in Bend that has uh, an unusual amount of just alcohol that they provide to the people. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's not unusual to get, like, you go up to them and they're like, the small farm, the small local distillery, they're like, oh, hey, do you want to try your thing? And they kind of, like, bury themselves in with the small local farmers and whatnot. You know, there's meads made by, you know, with honey from local local bees and all that. The local bees. The local bees. We love the local bees here. <laughs> Um, special gin, special syrups to go with those gins, you know, things like that. And you can go up and it's not unusual to ask for a sample and they just give you like a full shot of whatever <laughs> they're offering. Let me tell you, it works. The amount of money I spent on, on, <laughs> on specifically alcohol at farmer's markets where normal people are around me buying vegetables is absurd. Diana, what are we talking about today? We are talking about big bads. So the key part, the key component of any... I'm not going to say any good story, but most stories that have to do with the tabletop world, especially, and you know, storytelling in general, most of the time they have one singular figure at the head of it all, something that is driving the plot forward and something that needs to be defeated before the book can be shut, before the story can be closed. And so today, Dev and I are going to talk about the best ways to go about crafting a big bad and also kind of like the peripherals leading up to the big bad, how you can portray them, how you can kind of foreshadow their arrival and even what happens after they die. I am so giddy for this episode. Deb has been talking to me for a week about how excited he is about this episode. Okay, if you got to be super hype about the horror episode last yeah. time, this one, this yeah. one's mine. I mean, we both are going to have a lot to contribute here based on the extensiveness yeah. of our notes. But yeah. in terms of being hype, this is the one that I'm hype for. I love a big bad. And we'll talk about a whole bunch of examples and whatnot today. But like... Yeah, all of my favorite media like as we were thinking about prepping for this I was just kind of like thinking through my favorite stories my favorite examples of villains and All I realized was like oh wait a minute literally all of my favorite stuff is because the villain was really good Th That's what makes me excited. It's like the hero's journey. Sure. 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 How cool is the bad guy though? <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about the hero show me the villain the entirety of the Far Cry franchise and like Breaking Bad, which is like considered frequently one of the best pieces of film of all time, yeah. is watching the creation of a big bad and like dealing with other big bads along the way. It's just, oh God, it's all so good. We're going to talk about all of this. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stop myself from just leaping from topic to topic though. 
Where do we even begin? I think leaping from thing to thing is actually a good starting point because I know we both have this in our notes, so it's a very easy Dinah and Deb get along and have the same opinion on something for once type vibe. But when it comes to big bads, you know, obviously they're the center point of your story, but you also want to make sure that they're not the entire story itself. Making sure that once you craft your big bad, you have a couple of like what I call commanders or other sort of, uh, yeah, like henchmen that lead up to your big bad. You need to have those stepping stones, right? If you have just one singular goal that maintains itself for the entirety of your storyline or your TTRPG plot line, it gets kind of boring. Like, it's just like, oh, you're at level one and you have this big bad who's at level 20 and you just like idle your way up the levels until you reach the point where you can fight this one person. Having tunnel vision on them is not super exciting. You're level one and the big bad is level 20, but maybe you have one of its henchmen who's running a local village on the big bad's behalf who's level five. And it's like, okay, that's immediately attainable. You know, and once you defeat them, they give you information on how to get to the guy who's at level 10. That gives you info on the guy who's at level 12. And then you go to the guy who's at level 17. And then that last level 17 guy gives you the level 20 guy's weakness. Mm. You know, something where it's like you're moving up a ladder and not making a beeline straight towards someone who's entirely out of your reach. Lots of thoughts. Okay. So, first of all, I do think I fully agree that the best way to get started with your big bad is to not start with your big bad. It's it, you, you come up with the with the abstract concept, like what is their goal? What are they doing? What you know, they're not they, they're probably not even going to show up in the story for a little while. And, and maybe maybe shouldn't, because the, a really great way to introduce them is via these lieutenants or henchmen or whatever you want to call them is have those people talk this big bad up, have their own sort of like sub goals that. That, that fracture out from what the big bad is doing. And so it's like they're doing their own thing. They are in their own way a medium bad, but they are it's in service to the biggest of the bad. Um, I am currently replaying uh, Undertale out of nowhere. <gasps> Such a good game. Such a good game. But if we like ignoring the just everything else about that game, because oh. there's a lot of big bad in that game. So the, the flow is exactly, it's perfect, right? So you start the game. And spoilers, here we go. Spoilers for already for Undertale. Audience, if you haven't played Undertale and for some reason you've managed to get this far without spoilers, please, for the love of God, do not go see, like, literally stop the Atlas Loom, hit pause, play Undertale, and, and come then back. come back. It is so important that you do not have that game spoiled. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I don't want to spoil the game, but I do want, I do think it is an immaculate example. Uh, so I will in post, just right here, hit pause. Or if, if you don't feel like playing Undertale in post, I will say the timestamp that you should go to. You're going to want to skip to like 10 minutes and 45 seconds. Okay, cool. Welcome. So in Undertale, you have very discrete sections that lead up to the, the finale, one of, one of the finales. And I, I'll, I'll leave all that out. We don't need to talk about that. But you start with your exposure to a caring figure who wants to help you, who wants to be motherly to you. She wants to, to support you, but that's not what you need right now. And you push back against it and she feels forced to use force against you to stop you from moving. So like not really a big bad, but it's your first experience with adversity. From there, you're introduced to essentially a 
joke of a boss. Like you're introduced to this character who's way over the top, very silly, completely incompetent. Uh, and his whole goal is like, he's like, I want to capture you so I can be special. But then he's like a goofy goober and like can't really go through with it. And you fight him and it's a silly fight and whatnot, but it's an actually kind of challenging first boss. And then you start moving a little bit further. And now you are running into the next segment, which the, the boss of this segment is actually threatening, actually dangerous, is a warrior who can f- screw you up pretty bad, who the previous guy, who was a, just a kind of a pushover, he like super looks up to this warrior. And she is painted throughout the entirety of this segment as like foreboding and can destroy you. Everyone keeps talking about how she's amazing and can kill anything. And it's the only reason that everyone's safe is because of this woman. Um, and then once you eventually defeat her or how I'm, you know, whatever you end up doing with her, uh, you move on to the next phase, which is a much more, it's like a, it's the murder robot. <laughs> it's the, the fashion murder robot who doesn't really give a shit about you, but you are there and they're like, well, you're here. We might as well have some fun. And so like, you've gone from sort of like pushing past these different people who are trying to stop you to here's just a robot that's toying with you and is your last challenge before you make your way to the finale. And so you have these, these stepping stones where you're getting increasingly harder people pushing back on your progress and treating you differently, starting with, with treating you with love, treating you with, respect treating you with anger treating you with i don't give a shit if you live or die before you even get to the boss and it's just full disdain at that yeah. point yeah and then not to mention that there's three four different final bosses and whatever but all along the way you are being told by these people who represent ultimately the final boss like I'm going to stop you before this happens. Like you're making a mistake. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. And you kind of have to convince them that you're right or kill them. But most of the game is not about killing. Well, depends on how you play. It. Depends on how you play. <laughs> I think another extremely great example and much simpler. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, spoiler ended. Okay. We're um, good. We're good. Welcome back. <laughs> the audience, welcome back. For those who haven't played Undertale, please go buy it. It's a great game made by a small creator. Please support them. It's, it's fantastic. Incredible. Also, fuck it, the soundtrack? Amazing. One I literally guy. have a playlist on in in my music library titled uh, Undertale Bangers. And <laughs> it's because it, there are a lot of bangers. Um, I think a much simpler example of lieutenants sort of talking up the big bad is Star Fox 64, which, uh, if you haven't played, the big bad of that game is Andros. He's just sort of this big floating head, uh, big bad evil guy. He just wants to control the galaxy. There's not a whole lot going on there, but every single boss at the end of every single level, as they're dying, like their dying words are essentially like, you'll never defeat Andros. Or mm. like, I'm going to serve Andros. I'm going to like wipe the floor with you and deliver you to Andros as a reward. Or, or, like, you routinely fight with this, like, enemy crew that uh, keeps getting, like, newer and newer ships from Andros. And they're like, we're going to show him what we can do with this. And, like, everyone's talking up Andros the whole time. And it, you eventually fight him and, and defeat him and whatnot. There's nothing super special there. But the whole point of the game is you're fighting your way to Andros. And every step of the way, you've got your current level boss specifically telling you that Andros is going to fuck you up. Oh, 100%. 
And just like from a technical standpoint, that whole stepping stone thing just makes it possible. So like if you can't defeat that middling creature, there's no way you can defeat the big bad. Mm -hmm. Like it is a checkpoint for you and it's a checkpoint for the players, which is why it's necessary. And you never really see a storyline that just goes straight to the big bad like ever because it just it doesn't make sense from a technical standpoint above the table and also below the table. And yeah, I, I, I remember. So I. I've mentioned before that like game design and development shocker is a big uh, a big passion of mine. And (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of discussion about like what makes a good boss fight. And we're not going to we're not going to get into that in this episode. We'll probably get into encounter design later on. But in this episode, I, I think the. What Diana said of like, if you can't beat this, there's no way you can beat the next thing. A good boss fight is a it's an evaluation. It's a test. You are testing the player to see have they learned what they need to learn. Are they capable? Uh, are they at a power level that, that they should be at? And like, how do they handle increasingly adverse situations? Are they ready to move forward? That's what a boss is. In video games, usually it's a hard stop. If you can save and load, you hit a boss, they beat the shit out of you. You're like, well, <laughs> I'm not getting past this right now. I guess I'm not good enough yet. Uh, in, a, in a campaign, there are other ways to go about you know, not party wiping, but getting basically having the party get turned away from a challenge that they're not ready for yet. Exactly. It's it's a necessary evil. A necessary. We should call that. That should be the episode title. Necessary Necessary evil. Perfect episode title. All right. Doing it now. See, this is the creative process at work, folks. Title. (laughs) Necessary evil. Okay. (laughs) I do want to touch back on that one point that you mentioned about, like, the, in, in Star Fox 64, that was the name of the game, right? I'm yes. not old. Okay, solid. Uh, it's a, <laughs> not to imply that it's that old. old of a game. I know, I know. Um, the thing you mentioned where the generals, the lieutenants were like, oh, just wait till you meet this person. The concept of rumors surrounding a big bad so important mm-hmm. holy shit like in some cases and i i feel like this is a kind of a good intro as to the way that you can describe big bads and kind of introduce them into your story is there's kind of two main paths as to how you can do it right you can have them be like you mentioned kind of alluded to up until you actually stand face to face with them you haven't actually seen them you only hear them talked about you know townsfolk in the areas that they control have these rumors of like oh i hear such and such is like they are the servant of this dark god or like oh i hear such and such is uh deathly afraid of you know this item or something Mm -hmm. like that those rumors can be true they can be false play with that as a dm as a gm as a storyteller um and you can basically make it so that the person who is behind the curtain is just that behind the curtain the entire time up until you actually confront them and that's kind of one way to do it you know the other way is a lot of fun but it has to be done carefully Having the big bad be present the entire time that your party is going through their storyline. And Curse of Strahd does this very well. And again, going back to Curse of Strahd, I'm so sorry. I'll find another module to fall in love with eventually. But until then, audience, you're fucking stuck with me. Uh, Curse of Strahd has it so that Strahd shows up at several points during the entire course of the story. He's actually, he's a random encounter. There is a chance where you roll a d20 any tw- every fucking hour that you're on the road. And if you roll a 20, Straw just shows up. <laughs> he just shows up. He beats the shit out of your party for fun. And then he walks away. And that in itself is kind of another example of like, yeah, you're not strong enough to fight me. Just wanted to prove it. Uh, sort of a vibe. But also like he's, you know exactly what his abilities are from the start. 
And your party has to, the, the entire course of their journey is not just getting to him, but also figuring out how to counter each of those abilities that he has. Um, whereas the other end of things where you just hear rumors is like kind of a mystery wrapped into the whole adventure and the whole storyline is not only are you trying to get to this person, but you need to find out who they are before you get to them and what their abilities actually are and if these rumors are true or not. So that's kind of like the, the two opposite ends of the spectrum as to how you can introduce a big bad. There's a mixture you can do there as well. And I've done this a couple times in campaigns where you have rumors and they've been there the whole time. Largely where there's people talking about the big bad and you've heard all these rumors about them. And then you finally meet the big bad and it's an NPC that you've been hanging out with the whole time. Mm. It's like Very a person who's been hiding in plain sight. And yeah. you like all of the rumors are true. You just didn't realize it. Like you just didn't put two and two together. And now you're face to face with this person who you should have suspected the whole time. Oh, yeah. The problem is that's such a trope, especially in like TTRPGs nowadays, where it's like, oh, yeah, the big bad is someone who's just like this lowly character who has their whole villain arc at the same time that these characters have their, you know, their hero arc. That's such a trope that if you go about it, make sure you do it so carefully so that the players don't just walk into episode one, see some. And Arlo, actually, our friend Arlentrick did an, a skit on this not too long ago where he described a scenario where, you know, session one, his players were walking into a town and then they see an old man get shoved into the mud by some guards. And the old man stands up and shouts at them and goes, you guys will regret this. And then the party just stands there and they're like. Okay, well, obviously that's a bad guy. Like, we should just end this now. And then they go and they, like, shove it. They, like, kill him while he's sitting in the mud. And so, like, that sort of vibe you want to stay away from, making sure it's not too obvious. But, yeah, like, someone who you've known the entire time being a big bad or in cahoots with the big bad is, like, such a dramatic flair that you can add to your story. Yeah. I, I the, the approach that I tend to take is less of the big bad has their uh, genesis during the campaign and more... The big bad is already established, but is is hiding in plain sight. Like they are, they are comfortable with their plan and comfortable on like maintaining appearances, and could just be some random shopkeeper in a town somewhere that everyone trusts, and you have no reason to suspect. But yeah. the signs were all there. Like they they've got a storeroom that they're very protective of stuff like that. Like, everyone knows that this person, you know, supports the town, but no one actually knows where they live. Yeah. 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 The other thing that you can do with that is you can have multiple NPCs that really seem like they could be the big bad. Like, they could be the obvious big bad. And I, I love this. I, I love having an NPC that's like, this person is way too put together. Like, this person has way too much control in any given situation. They are more powerful than I think they should be. There's something else going on here. That something else could be anything, uh, but it's also a very good distraction to, love you, to let you uh, continue to have the actual big bad sort of slide under the radar. Uh, I specifically love doing this with like heads of factions, people who are, who are very powerful, who are, they have a lot of like political pull or... There's rumors. It's easily believable rumors of like they are abusing their power or they they have a desire to take over the world. And like, obviously, they've got a private army at their disposal or they're like amassing this incredible amount of power. But it turns out that they have an alternative reason for it. They're amassing all of this power to try to like revive their dead wife, something like that, like something noble or good. But you thought they were trying to do something evil because it was so believable. 
Oh my God. Which goes straight into the, I think the biggest point that the both of us have with regards to how you create a good BBG is the best bad guys come from people with good intentions. Mm -hmm. Good guys make the best bad guys. So, and honestly, the crux of making a good bad guy, one that's morally gray, one that's a little bit questionable, one that actually has good intentions, but poor paths to doing it is just taking a world problem that has a reasonable solution or maybe doesn't have a solution yet and just giving your big bad guy a shitty solution to that problem you know someone looking for revenge uh a common trope is someone who is you know they didn't start off evil they were just some shopkeeper but while some adventurers came to town defeating some other evil encroachment of some demons or whatever the collateral damage killed that shopkeeper's family and you know, shop and everything that they knew and loved. And that shopkeeper then goes on to become a big bad. And it's all just like part of some grand revenge plot line. But at its heart, it's relatable. And every big bad, I feel like, and you can do big bads that break away from this, you know, that are just evil for the sake of being evil. But at its heart, the best big bads, in my opinion, are somewhat morally gray. Like they have a relatable reason for doing what they're doing. If we're talking about like alignment chart stuff, if we, if we, mm-hmm. if we put it in the context of alignment chart, um, which again, I want to I first be clear that like the the lawful, chaotic, good, evil um, chart, it's a nice framework. It doesn't, it's not perfect. And, it's and like simplistic. As much as I love to figure out like where do they slot in, that's a fun exercise. It's it's not all encompassing. Um, but if we do just take that for a moment, I think what you're talking about here is essentially chaotic evil, pretty boring. Yeah. Chaotic evil just being I'm doing evil for evil's sake. And that's not relatable. That's just, oh, okay, here's obvious person we kill. Like the thing that, that you're getting at here, I think, is at least the reason that, that I like doing this is having the, the party question themselves. Uh, they, they're face to face with the big bad, but maybe he's not so bad. Maybe he's kind of right. Maybe he's got a point. Or even the opposite where your players are like, oh, God. Am I evil? Like, Mm -hmm. I have the exact same way of thinking as this person. My favorite go-to when it comes to that sort of example is someone who is a big bad only because they're in service to, like, a greater deity or a god. And this works especially well in high fantasy settings where you have classes based around gods, you know, clerics and paladins and whatnot. If that cleric and that paladin comes up against a big bad who is the exact same as them, also a cleric, also a paladin, also a servant to just the opposite type of deity, and that, you know, servant, that big bad goes, yeah, my God is absolute. Like, I believe what they're doing to be absolutely correct. Or even turning, you know, using some variation of that cleric's own words against them. And then that cleric defeats the big bad, but walks away from it thinking, like, are they really that different? Making you see yourself for who you are. That's the other, like, that's a good, a good big bad forces you to come to terms with understanding your character, understanding what you want understanding what your purpose is and if that truly aligns here it's like you said like see if they can hold up a mirror to you and and shake your foundation at a at a fiction level not just a wow you really drained all my hit points but at a my character is now having a crisis that's what we're trying to go for here oh yeah the whole good little soldier trope oh my god Amazing, easy to play off of the concept of someone just following orders. Yeah, sure. You're following orders. You're the, you know, 
patron to some wealthy duke who's hiring your party to go off and do something. But also, so is the big bad. They're just bowing down in subservience to someone else. So I want to take a quick step back and talk a little bit more about what you mentioned with having a goal, but like a shitty way of approaching, like a goal that makes sense, but a, a ridiculous approach or a, a, a an extreme approach. The Legend of Korra, the the sequel to Avatar: The Last Airbender, the thing that they do, and it, and it, it does get a little formulaic, and is it's pretty simple. I don't think that it's like the best examples ever, but I think that they are very clear examples. Is they take a they take a concept, usually it's like a political goal or ideology, and they take it to the extreme, and that's the big bad's goal. Season one has a character who wants to eradicate benders because he is acknowledging the inherent inequality where there's some people in the world who have powers and some people who are mundane and the people who have powers basically control the world and the people who are mundane are just like normal citizens more or less and he is like we need to eradicate bending season two has a bad guy who wants to return the world to its native form of being integrated between the physical plane and the spirit world, which essentially would bring about the end of humanity. But the season three villains are anarchists and they believe that all, all hierarchy and all power is inherently morally unacceptable. And they are, it's four, it's a group of four people who are all incredibly powerful and we're all in these like varying, extremely high security jails that were designed explicitly for each one of them to not be able to escape. Oh. But something changes and they're able to escape and they are now essentially going from place to place trying to take out world leaders, including the Avatar herself. In season three, they successfully take out one of the most powerful world leaders. And in season four, there's a power vacuum there that gets filled with a fucking fascist. And... So the anarchists have been, three of them are killed and their leader is jailed again. And he finds out, like he learns about what has happened. He tried to make the world better shaped in his image, but in reality just created the world's worst, most dangerous fascistic threat they've ever seen. And so he accomplished the opposite of what he was going for. And he ends up having to turn around and help stop that from happening. Like each season has its own big bad and each big bad has a, a goal that does make sense. Equality, getting closer with the spirits that have been locked out of this world, giving power back to the people and stopping corrupt tyrants. A bad solution to a real problem. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I do. When I go back to what you said about that one guy who was like, yeah, I wanted to bring down this one world leader because that's what I think is right. And then it ended up making a worse problem. Mm -hmm. That is, and this is kind of an advanced move on the side of, writing stories and being a TTRPG, you know, GM and things like that, is if you make it so that killing the bad guy, the big bad in your story, has a negative consequence that is unavoidable that your players have to grapple with either as they're planning to take out this big bad or afterwards in the fallout. Oh my God, that creates such a good storyline and such a rich sort of plot that goes beyond just, this is our target, once they're dead, it's over. Making it so it's like, once they're dead, it's not over, we have other things to deal with now, is such a good way to move forward. So for example, that power vacuum, like you mentioned, you can have it so that when your party breaks, you know, maybe the big bad is some big political figure who's very present the entire time, and they're very hard to get to, you know, because of all this support that they have, and you have to like build a case against them before you have the rights to go after them and kill them. And once you do, now what? And, and that now what is like a really big oh, potential lead into a longer storyline. Um, 
This happens a lot with D&D, where people finish a storyline like Curse of Strahd, and then they're like, God, that was so good. Like, I want to keep going. And it's like, oh, well, there's not much to keep going off of. And then DMs kind of have to scramble to find some bigger bad beyond that big bad. If you have that in step, you know, in place the whole time where the party has to kind of like think about it and then confront it as a step after the big bad, that's a good way to keep the story moving forward. I think a uh, a interesting depiction of that is the big bad actually was doing a little bit of good too. Maybe the big bad was they're a big bad. I'm going to use the political sort of like the political figure that was there the whole time. Maybe they're pretty corrupt. Maybe they're pretty shitty. Uh, but they've also been keeping the town safe. They they have a vested interest in the safety of this town because it's where they're headquartered. And there hasn't been a bandit raid in years because they've really upped the security. Yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff going on and like they've got some some ulterior motives. But you take them out and now you're responsible for this town and you had yeah. no idea what they were keeping at bay. And now there's like a bandit lord who was biding his time trying to figure out how to take back over this town and you just gave him the opportunity and there yeah. you go it's so good and it, it makes it more morally gray and moral grayness is kind of the crux of a good big bad it's what separates the fucking basically a good big bad from just you know a dragon or some bestial being that's just acting off of its baser instincts which is still fine. Like, you can have that in your campaigns if you want, but, like, it's not the deep, complex adventure that I feel like a lot of people, at least at our level, you and I and Deference, are seeking from a proper storyline. Like, that's that's when it becomes more like a video game as opposed to, like, a TTRPG or a proper, fleshed-out, complex story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on the topic of a bigger bad, right, I think that's another thing that we should that we should dive into a little bit because... Sometimes you do, you know, you finish the big bad, now what? How do, how do I make a bigger bad? You also might want to start with the biggest bad and make sub-big bads. You know, we talked about, like, henchmen and lieutenants, but you can have multiple big bads that oh, have yeah. multiple, like, layers to them. So you've got, like, I think a good example... <laughs> I'm so sorry, Diana, but this is on you. I think a good example is from Zelda, where you've got sort of the omnipresent big bad that is... Ganon. You've got Ganon, Ganondorf, whatever form he's taking in whatever. In, in Breath of the Wild, it's Calamity Ganon. It's just, Gan it's always Ganon. He's bad. Big, big, big bad guy. Those but are all the same guy? Yeah, it's all the same guy. Well, it's the same... It, before we started talking, before we started this episode, before we started recording, um, I was talking to Diana a bit about how fucked up the Zelda timeline is. <laughs> um, it, the answer to your question of, is this the same guy? The answer is, uh, <laughs> it's he's it might not be the same guy but it's the same vibe how's that what like link is not always the same link it's a different what? guy each time yeah no every, every link is a different link what the fuck is up with this series it's a fucked up timeline so ganon is the big bad always but there are certain games usually it's like the the second game in a in a given generation, where it's like the first game, the first Zelda they put out in a given generation, it's like you just go directly to Ganon. Uh, but then the second game will usually have like an alternative big bad, and sometimes there's no Ganon, but usually there's like a big bad, and then it turns out big bad was just working for Ganon. Um, but that's that works, and it lets you play with some fun shit. So, for example, in Twilight Princess, which is probably the darkest Zelda game. Ganon is not a thing for a while. 
the big bad's name is, I don't actually know how it's pronounced, it's Z-A-N-T, I think it's Zant or Zant, I'm gonna say Zant, and Zant is this, he's this usurper of the throne of the Twilight world, and the, the queen of, the, of Twilight who he, like, kicked out is now your, like, traveling companion, and she's, like, working with Link to try to, like, get her, get her throne back, um, but he is this, like, ominous figure who who ejected the queen of twilight and now he's the usurper of the throne of twilight big scary spooky dude who's like he shows up um at like the end of all like the first like five or six dungeons he shows up and like animates something that is the boss of that dungeon and he's like have fun bye and leaves and so it's just like wow this guy is like untouchable he's got a lot of power he's this is spooky and then it turns out that he's actually working for ganon and he's kind of terrified of Ganon and he's kind of a goober like once once you actually go to fight him his fight sequence is wacky as shit like they do the whole uh like the boss arena changes to all the different boss arenas that you were in before and each time that it changes you have to like use whatever whatever skill you use to fight that arena's boss to defeat him in that moment. And so you're just like going through sort of like a boss rush style thing. But the whole time he's just like screaming and flailing and like all of his attacks are, are so like uncoordinated. He, he like pulls out two swords and he'll just like flail wildly while running towards you. And it's like, he has been portrayed this whole time as the big bad and like the big, powerful, scary guy. And now I'm fighting him. He's just like, Aah! Like he literally sounds like that and it's just like screeching and screaming and flailing and spinning and whatnot. And you eventually defeat him and it's just like, who the fuck was that? And then you move on to the actual big bad of the game, which is Ganon, who is a formidable force who's actually terrifying. And you understand that like this guy was just a fucking puppet. He was painted as the big bad, but he was just a convenient distraction while Ganon was doing his actual shit. And this guy was more than happy to be the, to receive all of this power and get placed on a throne. And now he's in charge. He's like, Oh, Hey, wow. I'm real cool. Where previously I was just like some schmuck, but he's still just some schmuck who was painted as a big bad. And that is an easy thing to work with, right? You've got the, the, the elevated henchman who is so, uh, so important in the plans of the big bad that you think like you have no idea who the real big bad is. And you think that he, that this is the main focus. This is the only guy only for that all to come crumbling down once you actually meet him. Can you imagine that in a tabletop role-playing game? Where you walk up, you start fighting this creature that you've been, that's been present the whole time, and then they turn out to have the stat block of functionally like an elevated commoner. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the dread that that would incur in your party when they're like, that was too easy, where's the other shoe? Yeah. You know? And the best, the best version of that other shoe, I think, is that... You fell for the big bads, like you you've played right into his hand and you've yeah. wasted all this time seeking out this guy who's just a fall guy, and you kill the guy, and then suddenly time stops, and the big bad has accomplished their goal, and the world is thrown into ruin. Cause you didn't realize what was going on here. It is taking every fiber of my being to not just word vomit about destiny right now. <sighs> um, so let's I'm gonna save that for later. <laughs> <laughs> You touched on a good point, though, there. When you were talking about that puppet creature, regardless of the fact that it's a puppet and that it's not actually, he's not that powerful, he's not that great when it comes to the actual fighting, he still had his motivations for being there. And I think that's an important thing that a lot of people, not a lot of people, hopefully, overlook when it comes to building a big bad, but making sure that they are as fleshed out as, like, a player character would be. Like, that's 
that should be the standard that you hold yourself to when you build this person. You should think about their goals, their bonds, what they're attached to in this world, their reason for fighting, like what, why they think what they're doing is important, uh, any themes that they have to their character, any particular, you know, default reactions that they would have to a certain scenario. Like when it comes to your big bad, you should have them fleshed out to the point that if you presented them with any sort of what if type scenario or if their players, you know, your players do anything against them, you should know automatically like, okay, this is how this person would react to this thing based off of their backstory. Like you should, regardless of who your big bad is, have a fleshed out story for them. I want to inv- I want to coin a term here. You you heard it here first, folks. I'm gonna oh, coin no. a term. Yeah. Big bad neutral guy. Uh huh. Referring to you've you've quested this whole time. You've been seeking this person, and we've talked about having a you know your big bad with a valid, with maybe a bit of a point, but how they're going about it is wrong. But what if you caught up with them finally, only to learn that what they're doing is a quite literally a necessary evil or isn't actually as evil as you thought, but you've been led to believe that like this is bad. And maybe now you're, now you don't know who to trust the people who sent you out here, the people who, who've hired you or have been your closest informants and friends who told you this is what needs to be happening. Were they in the wrong? Cause this person while powerful, while important, while definitely doing some shit, does have an actual and justifiable point. And now it's on the party to determine what happens next. You could kill them, you could work with them, or you could leave them be and go figure out what has happened that led you here. And sort of it's still a, I guess it's still sort of a like henchman into bigger bad who was there the whole time kind of thing. But it's not directly just like, here's the big bad, this is their henchman. It's instead, the big bad has tricked you into going after the big neutral who, yeah, like you absolutely could waste them and that might have an impact and it might be positive or negative or both. But it's really just a matter of what do you want to see in this world? How do you want this world to move forward? An example, I I can give a a decent example of a campaign that I ran once that had the godlike character who wove time, like like planned events, Anything that was going to happen was predetermined by them on purpose. That was like their job. And eventually the players were face to face with them. And the timeline that this that this entity was making was portrayed as a big dome of stained glass. And if you destroyed the stained glass, like each each depiction on the stained glass is an event. If the glass was destroyed, it would shatter the plans. Basically, it would shatter the timeline and things would be unpredictable from there on out. And so the question became, is free will actually what we're seeking here? Like we've learned that we don't have free will. We've learned that all of this is being orchestrated, but does that make it bad? Does that make it worth stopping? And if, it, if we do destroy it and we do destroy the plans, does that necessarily mean it's going to be better? Unclear. So the choice was essentially the devil you know or the devil you don't. We love a good philosophical question embedded in our TTRPG games. <laughs> we love it when our leisure turns into grand fucking existential crises. <laughs> if you can get, if you can, if you can successfully get this motion from your players. Yeah. Yep. For those who are listening to the audio <laughs> podcast, I'm so sorry, but also oh. check us out on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, if you can get your players to face palm slightly, <laughs> mm-hmm. to hold their heads up in confusion. One thing we haven't talked about yet. 
is the sort of categories of of big bads. You know, you've got your we we talked about insp- like like their their goals, their inspiration, perhaps their genesis. The the old man, uh, shout out to Arlo, the old man being thrown into the mud. Um, the the who they are, part of it. You know, are they a villager? Are they a politician that has too much power? Are they some arcane wizard that's that's gone mad from their studies? Is important, and you can use that to your advantage to mess more with emotions. If you have an NPC that has been around for a long time, that has been a good friend, that genuinely was not a big bad, that had no intention of being, but maybe has been tapped and is now becoming one of those lieutenants or henchmen or slowly converts into the big bad or maybe disappears for a while and comes back later and you've been hearing about this big bad as some like nickname this whole time and now you're face to face with them and it's G- G- uh, G- uh, Gerard? <laughs> it's Gerard! <laughs> and Gerard is standing there He's looking there at the you. It was, it's been Gerard this whole time looking yeah. right back at you. And that brings a lot more depth and weight to the encounter. It's not just like, okay, time to fight the big bad, but we have a big moral choice here. It's time to fight the big bad, we have a big moral choice here, and how am I going to kill this person? How am I going to fight this person? Do we even want to fight this person? Because it's, we have a history here. Bonus points if you can have them doing big bad stuff that doesn't directly actually harm the players, so the players could have reasonable doubt or or some kind of reason that they could use to not actually kill the big bad in that case, or maybe try to approach it. Like the goal being, how do we neutralize the threat, but we don't feel good about just killing them. And you can do the same thing with player characters, especially player characters who have died or who have been retired for some reason. You bring them back as a big bad. Maybe they got kidnapped or something. You, yeah. you might want to okay it with the player first, but always a fun time. That's what I tell my uh, my audience whenever they're like, yeah, like, I really want to try this new character class, but, like, I am afraid to tell my DM that I want to switch tracks entirely. And I'm like, listen, you tell your DM that you want to retire an old character, they're going to foam at the fucking mouth. Uh, especially if they watch my stuff, because then they'll be like, yeah, sure, just give me your character sheet. Promise I'll do nice things with it. You know? like <laughs> Immediate <laughs> sort of Xerox. Life. Just... 500 copies everywhere, studying it, internalizing it. Oh, yeah. Like having your, your former character come back. is a bit, oh, And we could do an entire other episode on the player side of things and how to mm. be a better player, how to creatively work your player into a story or retire them, take them out of a story. Oh, God, there's such good ideas there. So let's move on to examples. I would mm. like to talk about some examples of good and possibly even some bad big bads. But I've got a few examples here. We talked about a, a bunch already, but... Um, I think a good example of a bad villain, and I had a big old conversation about this in my stream recently, but the big bad of the Avatar, of the original Avatar show, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, um, Fire Lord Ozai. He is a, he's the, the leader of the Fire Nation and is doing a war at everybody else. And his motivation is, I want to I rule the world. And yeah. it works because... He's mostly not in the show. He's mostly just a force of evil that puts a timer on the hero's journey. Like he's there because like this is the big bad guy. He's evil and wants to kill everybody and rule the world and you got to stop him. 
There's not a whole lot more than that. But there are really, really great, well-fleshed-out villains and villains who have redemption arcs and villains who have really great reasoning for why they are how they are. They were forged that way through, like, childhood trauma, and this is how they express it now. And, like, whether or not that validates them, like, they're still evil, but you you learn why that they're 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 not just fueled by unbridled rage and a desire to rule the world they're fueled by i am hurt and i was hurt in these ways and i'm now either overcompensating or just never adjusted but then you've got the big bad you know after all those people are are defeated you just have big bad and he's just like i'm so evil like yeah it's fine and mark hamill voices him which is pretty fun but like oh really oh, yeah. shit um <laughs> but He's still just, I am evil. I want to destroy the world. Like, he quite literally is like, I'm going to to set the world ablaze and rise from it as the Phoenix King. And it's like, okay, mm. uh, you're just mad. It's, it's the chaotic evil, right? It's, yeah. again, it's just like falls flat. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, yay, big, big flashy fight in the end. He's very strong, big fight, cool stuff. But like, yeah, the the complex motivation morally ambiguous ish evil is from the smaller henchmen in that show which brings up a good point about redemption arcs do you ever make that a like possibility for the big bats mm. in your campaign yes that is a serious yes mm -hmm. oh man because mm -hmm. i feel like people build villains with the concept that and and I've seen this at a couple of different like big APs and whatnot, the concept that there is no redemption for them. And that's what makes them truly bad in the end is like, even if the characters come into the story and they're like, oh shit, like I see this person's motivation. Like I see the source of their troubles. I see why they're doing what they're doing. And then they go up to the big bad and they're like, hey, like I see you, like you don't have to do this. Like, the, you know, the whole like, I get it. I understand, but take my hand. Like we can be good. And then that moment when the big bad like slaps away the player's hand and then it's like, no, sorry, I'm set. I'm doing what I'm doing. Fuck you. And then that's what hammers them home as truly evil, quote unquote, truly evil in the end. That sort of turnaround is kind of controversial because I feel like a lot of people go one of two ways. They either make big bads that are redeemable or they make bad big bads who seem redeemable, but who in the end, like there's no check that you can make. It's just nothing can happen to save this person from the brink. Yeah, I mean, I I love, I actually prefer to not kill my big bads. I prefer mm. for them to live. I prefer to have a second half of their story. Sometimes, obviously, they just die. Like that's that's. It's not like I can do that every single time. And there are stories where it's just ne it's just necessary. And also sometimes it's just I don't feel like it. Just let them yeah. die. Cool. End of story. Closure. But if you have a, a, a long sort of like endless ongoing campaign kind of a thing. So this is actually a thing that I took from, of all games, this game called Littlewood, which is a very cute, like, it's like a cozy game that has been sort of, like, stripped down to its bare essentials, and it's just, like, cute pixel art, build a little town, have people move in. Uh, it's super fun. It's really, really, really good, and it's, they just, like, streamlined everything, so wonderful cozy game. Um, but the point is, the, the premise of the game is you've finished your grand adventure, and now you're ready to settle down. And so you go to some plot of land and, and build a little town and make some friends and people move in. And different characters move in over time and like have different requirements of like things you got to build for them. But one of the characters that moves in is the big bad evil guy from the adventure that you finished. And they have amnesia. And they don't Ooh. remember what happened, but they just are, they have nowhere else to go because everybody hates them. Mm. And so they move into your town and you're chill about it. 
and they're like, I'm so glad that we can be friends now. Like, I can't believe that we were that we were enemies before. Like, it's they play into the they play it, play it up. Obviously, you don't know what it was like. They don't they hand wave what the adventure was and what this person did. But they make it clear like this was the big bad and whatever you did when you defeated them wiped their memory. And that is such a good idea. Having the big bad, the players maybe defeat them. Something happens. They're thrown into some big swirling vortex of magic an, an ambiguous end to them, right? Not just like you blew off their head or their corpses on the ground, but they were just taken in some way and then are gone for a long time. Maybe an entire story arc passes. And then later on, you're just in a town and you look in, out of the corner of your eye, the, the local fruit vendor <laughs> is very familiar, oh, yeah. but he's just the local fruit vendor and truly is just the local fruit, like doesn't understand doesn't know who they were. Maybe it's amnesia. Maybe it's maybe they are just trying to get a new start. Like maybe they remember everything and they ran off and you've now blown their cover and now you've got a whole new storyline. Uh, and maybe they're maybe they've learned the error of their ways. Maybe they've grown. Maybe they have a family now and something to protect. And the presence of you being there and being the, the people who could out them and them knowing that you've previously defeated them, they now feel threatened of what they've finally been able to build for themselves and lash out or fuck with you in new ways or something. Yeah. Or even better, team up with you against the next big bad. That's always fun too. And it brings in the whole concept, like this nature versus nurture debate and what happens when that person who left behind their old life is pushed to bring that old life back out. That is the premise of Better Call Saul. <laughs> and John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> I brought it back. <laughs> Here. We made it. <laughs> I was excited to say that the premise of Better Call Saul because that was my next uh, villain example. <laughs> oh, really? He's a villain. Yeah. Okay, so again, having not seen Better Call Saul, he's not the villain. It's he, it's not Saul. Oh. Um, but the entire Breaking Bad universe has really, really good villains. Um, the the main the main villain that people think of from Breaking Bad, aside from the main character who is the villain by the end, um, is Gus Fring, who is a Really well put together local businessman. He runs a, a, like a chicken joint, like a chicken, a, a fast food fried chicken chain that is like universally loved by everybody. All of that is a front for a massive drug empire. But he is so he puts himself out there and is so well loved by everybody that there's no reason to suspect him whatsoever. He is just a staple of the community. He even donates to the DEA like he sponsors the DEA's like field day, you know, employee appreciation night or whatever. And. Mm -hmm. He's this like really well put together. He has like OCD, I think. And um, like he's very meticulous about everything. Like he always like wears like the same shirts. He's always very meticulous with his like tie. And there's a sequence where one of his own lieutenants who has been like super loyal the entire show goes against his his wishes, basically. Not not in a bad way. The lieutenant thinks that he's doing the right thing. The lieutenant is trying to prevent a lapse in production of meth. And so the lieutenant steps in and like just starts doing something to make stuff happen. But that was insubordination. And so there's a sequence where Gus enters the room completely silent, where the lieutenant is there and the people who are like refusing to work, refusing to produce the meth, they are there as well. Gus comes in, says nothing. Gus just walks over to a locker. He slowly undoes his tie slowly unbuttons his, his uh, button-down shirt to just have his undershirt on. Um, and then he slowly walks over to the group, stands behind his lieutenant, takes out a box cutter, and slits his throat. 
and the blood goes spewing everywhere, all over the other people, all over everything, and Gus just stands there silently holding the guy while blood is spewing out of his neck until the guy collapses on the ground. Gus then goes back, cleans himself up, puts everything back together, makes sure his tie is nice and correct, and walks out. And it's, like, horrifying. Because he's so... Yeah, the poise, the, the silence, the meticulousness, the fact that he's, he is there to murder somebody... But he first needs to take off his, he first needs to make sure he folds his clothes and make sure that everything is nice and neat and tidy before he murders somebody to make a point. Murders his own like second in command to make a point of you do not go against my orders. Incredible. Anyway, he also has one of the best death scenes ever. But in Better Call Saul, Gus is there. Um, he's, he's, Better Call Saul is a prequel. And Gus is, Gus is like more or less getting established at the time. But one of the things he's doing is he's interfacing with the Mexican drug cartel and the cartel kind of has their own people. They introduce a, a villain towards like the latter half of the show named Lalo, who is uh, a representative of the cartel and is very suspicious of Gus. He's like the only person who can meet Gus's energy, so to speak. Like everyone else is just like kind of worried about their own shit. Lalo is here being like, so why are things how they are here? And he's whip smart. He's not just like there's there's other cartel members who they show in the beginning of the show who are just like crazy or brutal murderers or whatever. Lalo is smart and meticulous and most importantly, charming. He is this smiley, upbeat dude. The first time you meet him, he's he's like in a in a taqueria that like his family owns or whatever. And he's like in the kitchen. He himself is like preparing some tacos. He's like making food. And he's and, you know, one of the main characters of the show walks in and you've never met this guy before. But for some reason, he's here and he's cooking food and he's like, hey, hey, come on in here. Come on in here. You got to try this recipe. It's a it's a family favorite. Blah, 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 blah. He's like making food and serves it to this character that you already know and care about. And the character's like really fucking confused and like suspects it might be poisoned or whatever. But your introduction to Lalo is this welcoming, loving, smiley figure. And he maintains that demeanor the entire time but also is catching on to people's plans. He's the only one catching on to Gus's plans. And Gus is ridiculously meticulous and good about hiding everything, but Lalo catches a whiff. And once he does, he's like a fucking bloodhound. And all the while, he's smiling, he's like making friends, he's treating people good, but he does not give a shit. Horrifying character because he's constantly portrayed as, like, like the speed at which he can go from smiley, cordial, happy to killing somebody they show you multiple times that it can be like that. And so in any scene that he's in, if he's smiley and cordial, you don't know what's going to happen next. Every scene he's in, you are holding on. If it's him and a character you like, you're like, is he about to kill somebody? I don't know. I don't know when he's going to kill somebody. That's just how he is. Amazing. You put him in a room with anybody, and I'm terrified for that person. <laughs> uh-huh. Which gets into such good depth of character when it comes to like okay this is this person's patterns of behavior which are something you should establish mm. when you're portraying a bdg is what would they do in this circumstance what's their first route and what's their second route when that first route doesn't go well have that plan in mind i think we should talk a bit talk a lot about that actually talk, <laughs> talk a bit about, about talk a lot about that uh-huh portraying I mean, the the bbegs yeah because that's a big part of it if you have a bbg you're gonna have to especially in a ttrpg step into their shoes. And so how do you do that? God, I've got a couple notes on this front. 
mostly talking about, I mean, to start, and I've kind of talked about this before on my personal page, on my TikTok, where when I portray a BBEG, I make sure that the difference between them and any other NPC is notable in very subtle ways. And so if you step into one of my games, most of the characters, most of the plain NPCs, even those lieutenants and generals that we talked about before, are going to behave as they would in context. You know, they speak in a certain manner. They act very, for the most part, stereotypical beyond the bounds of those little special quirks that I've decided that they have, those special, like, patterns of behavior. They largely follow that. My BBGs are more like players, where... And, of course, you'd know this being at my table, and anyone who's played D&D or any other TTRPG would know this, but, like, when you're sitting at the table, in character, your characters are very much like you are in person. You know, you speak using modern slang and modern mannerisms. You're very aware of everything going on above the table, even if your character isn't entirely, you know, cognizant of that because they're at the table. They're below the table. Um you have certain patterns of speech, you're very careful about your inventory management, you're very aware of the enemy's capabilities, their weaknesses, their strengths, you're taking notes the whole time. I make it so my enemies, my BBGs, are very similar, where they use modern slang, modern mannerisms. The BBG will go up to a character and be like, all right, so what can you do? What's your shtick? That sort of vibe. And that immediately makes it, like, you know, subconsciously or fully consciously, the players will regard this character with a, not so much respect, but more just like a knowledge of like, oh, you're different from the others. You're not just another player at the table. You're the one at the table moving players around. Uh, I There's a sequence that I do quite often with my BBGs where they go up to the player and they're like, oh, okay, let's see what your capabilities are. Like, come on, try and hit me. That sort of thing where it's like, I know what my weaknesses are. In fact, I'll show them to you. I'm going to see what you can do with them. That sort of thing. Or, like, that question of what can you do? Like, if you go up and ask an NPC in character, oh, like, what's your deal? They'll start talking about, like, oh, you know, I'm a farmer. My father was a farmer. My father's father was a farmer. Kind of going into, like, their whole in character, this is what a real person would say. If the big bad guy goes up to your player character in the story and goes, what can you do? Like, you got a holy symbol on your pouch. You want to try it out? You want to see how good that, how much good that does you? That sort of thing is just... But, of course, that does immediately give away who the big bad guy is in a story. So, like, if you have a random townsfolk that seems to know a lot more than they let on in that meta sort of sense, that's not super conducive to, like, a long-term mystery of, like, who is the big bad type storyline. So you have to use that sparingly. But that's one of my favorite methods. I would argue that you could actually do a little bit of both there. You could... You think? I think it would actually lend more weight to the big bad if they themselves were also putting on a character. If they themselves were intentionally, you know, hiding in plain sight and dumbing themselves down and once met in the context of them being the big bad, completely different, completely mm-hmm. different vibe, completely different mannerisms, mannerisms. That's something we should talk about. Oh, uh, yeah. Come up with a, a, a tick. Come up with some of something. You can do this for any NPC, but absolutely do it for your big bad have them speak a certain way have them have some ver- like vocal tick or some tell uh have them like if you are if you are portraying with with you know in person or over video uh have them like just have some sort of tick with their face like they're like constantly like messing with their face or something and like it's a subconscious thing it adds so much to the sense of like 
This is a full-blown person. This is like like this person, like, what's the story behind that tick? It doesn't really matter in the it doesn't matter. You don't need to answer it. Yeah. But it adds it, it adds meaning, it adds realism to this character as opposed to just another big target, right? Weird movement, weird uh unnerving eye contact or lack of eye contact, or just talking at you but not paying attention to you because like you don't even register. Just all of that can be used to elevate the sense of threat because it's like, okay, this is landing more, more than your average bad guy, more than your average bandit. Oh, yeah. I heard a story once about a, a DM who used a specific use, and this is like above the table. Uh, not only did they have those sorts of mannerisms, which they portrayed in NPCs who were just the big bad in disguise, who had the same mannerism, like they didn't try and hide that, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of like foreshadowing as to what the big bad would actually be when they fully revealed themselves. Uh, but they also had this music that they used whenever the big bad was present in a scene or about to approach. And so they would like slowly turn that music up whenever the party was about to encounter them. And it took like three or four attempts of encountering the bad guy before the party was like, oh shit, he's about <laughs> to show up, isn't he? <laughs> Like, that's so good. And it just yeah. plays on your characters. It, it it gives your characters trust, or it gives your players uh, a sense of, I guess, the fact that you trust them to be intelligent enough to know and to make those connections. Mm-hmm. Here are some things that you can consider when you're actually going about building your big bad. And let's just talk about maybe the biggest bad, maybe the second level big bad or whatever. But I feel like there's a few different starting templates, we'll say, of your sort of cosmic, massive manifestation of evil or bad, right? That's your, that's your Ganon, right? This, like, concept of bad. You've got your normal person, your, your co- like, like, commoner or scholar or whoever, who's just, like, a, a mortal being with a goal who wants to do something bad. And then you've got your person who is broken in some way, that either doesn't belong on this plane or is like a dragon that's masquerading as a human, is a monster that's pretending to be something else. Sort of your, not just your, oh, let's tug at heartstrings and have like a very human reason for why this person is doing something, but instead have a sort of self-servicing reason why perhaps something that's non-human or whatever is trying to benefit themselves. Big wide range there. (laughs) But if you're looking for a very, very baseline, like, what kind of flavor of, of threat do you want? I would say those are my big three. I'm curious, Diana, if you've got, if you've got other options there. B- between normal dude and... Cosmic horror. And cosmic horror. Uh, my go-to big bad guy is a good guy. And so just someone who has, a, kind of as we touched on throughout this episode, someone who has good intentions and just a bad, very direct way of going about it, which that'll do a lot of the work when it comes to figuring out the exact morality and mannerisms of your character for you. You can even literally take just a hero that you've built in the past and corrupt them a little bit and then make that your big bad if that's what you're seeking. And that inherently will make them relatable, an intense threat, and kind of salvageable. I think another really big part of portraying a big bad is their layer. What does that look like? Where is it? What shape does it take? Is it on this plane? Do they have their own little pocket dimension somewhere that they've been running to to escape to, to do whatever they want to do there? 
Is it a tower on the hill that's overlooking with lightning striking around it and swirling vortex of clouds? Or is it beneath a trap door in some rundown shack and it's just a small dungeon where they're collecting some artifacts of incredible power and they're about to complete their goal? They're going to get the last Chaos Emerald. Any one of those and anything in between. And it should really be an extension of, of the vibe that you're trying to go for for your big bad. Yeah, it should reflect their ideals and also how they've been raised up to this point, which goes into like their backstory. So like if you were to look at like the layer of a dragon or something like that, it's very straightforward because it's built into the creatures. And that's kind of the problem with like bestial BBGs is like it's it's built into just the way they are. It's their stat block. It's just like you are this creature. Therefore, you act this way. Humanoids are a little bit more different. You know, maybe you had a BBEG who was shunned by their friends and family and society and so they live in isolation and they try and make sure that no one can get to them because they're so used to being in isolation that they've been forced it kind of upon themselves in their adult life so their entire domain is filled with thorns with guards with impassable walls impenetrable fortresses something so that it reflects their upbringing or maybe you have the opposite maybe you have someone who has a position of power politically or they enjoy being fawned over and sought after and courted and so they surround themselves with yes men and their domain instead looks like you know a a royal's court and it becomes a little bit harder to fight them not because of how impenetrable it is but maybe because there's so many people around and there's collateral damage there's witnesses things like that are really the the layer is a reflection of the person diana i'm gonna talk about destiny (gasps) okay yeah fine so it's just so spot on i bet that anybody listening to this who plays destiny is freaking out right now um so in destiny there's a notion in destiny lore there's this notion of this thing called throne worlds which are essentially just dimensions that are pocket dimensions for big bads more or less there are gods that can create a throne world that they're that's where they actually kind of live. And a throne world is it starts off, I believe, canonically starts off like empty. And then it uh, takes a form based on the god that ha- that is like inhabiting it in a recent expansion for Destiny called the Witch Queen. The big bad was the Witch Queen uh, named Savathun. Mm-hmm. And she is this god of, of like trickery. She is, is, she's been pulling so many strings throughout the entirety of the entirety of the game, basically. And now you are finally like hunting her down, and you go to her throne world. And in her throne world, again, this is like an extension of who they are, and it's like it's a reflection of them. Her throne world has this gorgeous, regal, ornate castle with beautiful like white stone like stonework everything that is juxtaposed with these like deep red leave like leaved trees and like like it's a lot of like red and white like really beautiful high saturation red and white really really pretty and then you go outside the castle grounds and it very quickly devolves into a bog a fucking swamp like a hazy buggy nasty swamp because that is who she is. On the surface, she has, she's put together, she has a plan, she is authoritative, she has this castle, and if you look behind the curtain, it's a fucking swamp down there. And I think that's such a good representation of 
the layer of the big bad reflecting them and and having subtext and just sort of telling you furthering that that sensation that design of the character through show don't tell i have two words for you hmm. shivering aisles Yes! <laughs> Such a good representation of it. To the point that that fucking DLC made the game. Because can we, it was can so we, well can we explain out. the Shivering Isles to, to our listeners who may not have played specifically that DLC? Premise-wise, Sheagorath, the uh, Elder Scrolls god of insanity, madness, things like that. The Shivering Isles DLC was something released for Oblivion. And it was so popular that it became like a almost inseparable from the game itself. It was like mm-hmm. one of the best parts of the game, and it was just yeah. a DLC where you as the hero of the story would, which I forget what it's called in that game exactly, um, but as the hero of the story, you would go into this other plane of existence, which was the home world of this Daedric Prince. And it was represented in exactly two split parts. You had this manic part, and you had this depressive part. Uh, the manic part was full of these golden soldiers who uh, represented everything good but also a little twinge crazy about the world people would have like mad tea party type vibes mad hatter vibes rather um and then the other half was just depressive it had these these dark soldiers dressed all in black who would just represent the oppressiveness of that side of someone's humanity and so the entire the entire plane of existence was just a reflection of him and having to navigate that and navigate both sides of him in order to understand him better as you confronted him was a major part of that DLC. It was the major part of that DLC. And it was just interesting to traverse through. I think he's a good example of a big, bad, neutral guy. Yeah. Right. Because he's not doing anything to you. He's just existing. And he is just by virtue of existing as the, the Daedric Prince of Madness, which one of the most metal fucking sequences of words humans have written, by the way, Daedric Prince of Madness. Holy fuck. The Daedric anyway, Princes are so cool. They're so, so cool. cool. Such good um, but he largely, like, one of the reasons that people love that DLC so much, and then they brought him back in Skyrim for one fucking quest. God damn it. Anyway, um, the voice actor is amazing, and the portrayal of him is incredible. He's, like Diana said, like, he's split two ways. He's literally, the way he's dressed, he's one half, like, in a way that you wouldn't expect, like, the left half and the right half of him are dressed differently in, like, different color schemes, because he just has this dichotomy at all times, but the threat isn't really him. I mean, he would kill you in an instant if he got, if he was bored and wanted to have some fun, but he's not really interested in doing that, because he himself would probably also acknowledge that that's not as fun as you would think it would be. He'd be like, I could just kill you, but that's not fun. I don't want to do that. (laughs) He is about to, like, go through a metamorphosis and essentially destroy the world. It's an understood thing. I'm a little fuzzy on the details. It's been a minute, but it's like an understood thing. Like this thing's about to happen. And he's just like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, about to destroy the world. I don't really have much I can do about it. It happens. Like that's his like approach to it basically. So like he's not, he himself isn't like trying to destroy the world. It's just, this is going to happen. And you kind of have to stop it. <laughs> so he's just chilling and being who he is and is doesn't have an evil plan, but is the is the conduit through which a like cosmic event is going to unfold. And you can't really I mean, like you could try to kill him, but he's essentially immortal. So mm. what do you do? 
it's such a oh god, such a good. I DLC. had no idea that was the premise of that. Again, I died very like when I started playing Oblivion, I went straight into the Shimmering Isles at like level fucking zero point two yeah, or whatever. Same. I broke out of jail as one does in the Elder Scrolls games, and then I was yeah. like, mm, "This other plane looks really fun." Yeah. Uh, and then my Xbox died, and I was just like, "Ah." Fucking rip. The point of this whole conversation being, like, externalizing the internal struggles or backstory of your BBG makes it so that the discussion of who they are and what led them to this point is more than just something that's condensed into a final battle or these brief moments that you have confronting them. Like, that kind of makes sure that your BBG's backstory isn't something that's, like, an afterthought. It's actually, like, a theme throughout the game. And as the players traverse that environment, like, physically, it's as if they're traversing the BBG's mental state. I love it. God, I love this stuff so much. Like, I... <laughs> uh, and we haven't even touched on... Oh, uh, there's so much more I want to talk about. We're going to have to do another Big Bad episode at some point. Yeah, yeah. We'll <laughs> add it to the list of we need part twos for all this shit because we have so much to say. Uh, I just, episodes. I desperately want to talk about the type of Big Bads that that straight up break the fourth wall. I've already done an Undertale spoiler. Flowey. I want to talk about Flowey. I feel like we should probably save some of something for a part two because we're I'm looking at the runtime uh, and mm -hmm. we should probably move on perhaps to Wish wish. wishes. So for those who are new here, we have a segment uh, where we answer your guys' wishes, essentially. Uh, anyone who has any questions related to TTRPGs, to story building, world weaving in general, can email them over to wish at theatlasloom.com. That is wish at theatlasloom.com. And we will answer them here on the podcast so everyone can learn. Um, today we've got quite a few, don't we? <laughs> we have a bunch. I don't know if we're going to be able to get to all of them. I'll try and do my best here. So this first one. Uh, comes from Thomas, who goes by he, him pronouns, who says, Hi, Thomas. I am a new DM and love your podcast. Thank you so much, uh, as it's really helped. However, last session, I felt like it fell flat. I'm full of fun ideas for my world, but I find it hard to make them interesting. Thomas then describes a town called Everwake that he has, which has a series of taverns and a couple of houses and literally nothing else. And it's quite literally just a constant party. Whenever one tavern closes, everyone, the patrons, the workers, all head to the next tavern and continue a party. And that's kind of the whole shtick of the town. However, Thomas asks, it's... Or, however, Thomas says, it's quite a fun idea if I do say so myself, but here's my question. So what? Why should my party care? It might be a fun idea, but I have a hard time making it interesting beyond what a cool niche little town. So how do you guys make things interesting without them becoming repetitive by throwing standard thieves or monsters at them all the time? I think you've hit the nail on the head yourself, honestly. So what? I want to start by saying I love it. I for, <laughs> like, a constant a, a constant bar hop, like a town that's just nonstop bar hop. Very yeah. fun idea. My I love experience, it. Basically. You did. Yeah, you did. You did good. I like it. Um, but. You said it yourself. So what? I'm not trying to be mean here, but the point of running a table is not to show off your amazing, fun ideas for a town. It is to tell a story that is comprehensive and, and has engagement on both sides, you, you and the players. This is a fun idea, but that, is, that in isolation isn't enough to run things and make things interesting. You need more than just the concept of the town. You need a reason to be there. You need you need a a bit of strife, perhaps. You need you need a problem that needs solving. You need a a, a whatever. You know, if if this is a town that's just sort of cast aside somewhere, and the party just rolls through, and they're like, "Huh, that's neat. It's a party place. Cool, great," and then move on. But that's just that's just 
neat. <laughs> you had a fun idea for a town, and now we're now we're done with it. Maybe they are cursed. Maybe they are cursed to have a non-stop party. Like maybe this time, maybe the reason that they do this is because they are enchanted. These people have been magically re- required to constantly revel, and if they and they, and they just like don't have the option not to. Fey vibes. Exactly. Give the party a reason to realize, like, okay, this town is a nonstop party, and it was fun for a bit, but this town is a nonstop party. Like, they literally cannot. And when you try talking to the NPCs and maybe even imply that they should take a minute and drink some water, they can't even comprehend that or refuse or maybe get angry or lash out. Like, like the magic that is controlling them is causing them to become violent at the notion of you trying to prevent them from doing the one thing that they are being commanded to do. That is a more that that gives the like meaning to the town that you are in. It gives it gives purpose to being there, not just this. This is a fun idea for a town. I want to put it in my world. Can people pay attention to it? And I've run into this all the time. I constantly am catching myself coming up with an idea that I'm like, this is so much fun. I love this so much. I can't wait to bring it to the table. And then I realize, like, oh, all I did was come up with an idea that I think is cool. And it didn't actually add anything. It was just, I thought it was a cool idea. And that's a hard line to walk. It's You have to remind yourself that you're building this for telling a story and collaborating with others. You're not building this to hold up a map to everybody and be like, look at my cool world. I did good. One of the easy ways to do that is to make it a moral conundrum where your party doesn't necessarily have to step in, but maybe it's good or maybe they want to step in. If you've got a town that's partying 24-7, what's happening to the kids in that town? What's happening to the production? Like, do people, people may want to party. Like, that might just be the thing. Maybe there are sales going on all the time. Maybe all these taverns are constantly in competition with each other, so they constantly have low prices, and the town is taking advantage of that. But also, like, your players step into this town, and they're like, nothing's happening beyond this party. Like, people seem to enjoy it, but do we want to stop it? Do we want to maybe instill something a little bit better in these people, or do we want to keep walking away? It's very similar to that Hydra town that I mm. talked about in a previous episode, which if you haven't seen our previous episodes, theatlasloom.com is a great way to watch all of them at once. Uh... I talked about this town that had captured a Hydra and was cutting off its heads and using the regenerative abilities of the Hydra to rely on the fact that it would make more heads. And so they're using so those heads as a food source. I Inherently, so much. it's just a fact of the town. They just live that way. They enjoy it. The Hydra doesn't enjoy it. But your party isn't approached with like the town telling them, like, hey, solve this problem for us. The problem exists if your party sees it as a problem. If they don't see it as a problem, they can just move on. And that's just like a little quirk of the town. But that sort of moral gray area, which we touched on a lot in this episode about BBEGs, is what's going to drive your party to do something on the off chance that you don't want to make it like what Dev said, which is like something evil is afoot here. Which honestly, in a town like this, I would kind of lean towards that just because it's very abstract otherwise for people to just want to party of their own volition all the time outside of being, you know, young and in your 20s and <laughs> living in a small college town with nothing better to do. Uh, man, what a time. <laughs> <laughs> I I would also caution sort of in general what you've described here as this tiny town that has these very specific properties and this one thing going for it. Again, fun and isolation but it really quickly falls apart if you are trying to just sort of pick one thing to be the thing for a given location. And it's okay to sort of start with a broad, like singular 
um, idea for a town, but it needs to have more than just that one thing. If you want it to be notable, if you want people to, to be invested in it, unless it has a reason to be just that one thing, you probably want to have a little bit more going on. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not a town. It's an encounter. Yeah. Excellent question, Thomas. Thank you so much for submitting. It sounds like a lot of fun, and personally, I'd love to have a summer vacation there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where do I, where, can, can I get the GPS coordinates? Thank you ahead of time. This next one comes from Balint, who didn't leave their pronouns, but they ask a very good question, saying, Hey, I was listening to episode 5 when I heard Diana was DMing a campaign in which there were a lot of players and not all of them were playing every session. How do you make that work? Um, excellent question, and I'm not the leading expert on this sort of thing, so if you're looking for more information, I would look at what's called a West Marches-style campaign. That's like the official name for this, this style of campaign, and essentially it's the perfect fit for when you have a lot of people who want to play D&D. You don't always have the same DM necessarily, although you can, and people's schedules don't line up. Which are basically like the big three big bads of fucking playing the, any the sort of The real big bad game. is scheduling, scheduling every time. Huh, it sucks. But a West March style campaign is a concept that was come up with a long time ago. And essentially it centers off this one dude who wanted to run a campaign for a bunch of people. But, you know, same vibe, scheduling wasn't working out. And so he created a style campaign where instead of having one overarching storyline where a party of four or five people or however many people goes through and completes quest after quest and does those sorts of stepping stones towards a big bad evil guy instead it was more like an open world series of radiant quests um, he built it so that there was this town on the precipice of a wilderness and the wilderness was called the west marches that's what the title comes from and the town is considered a safe zone and it has a guild hall that guild hall is the source of all the player characters so everyone who comes into this campaign could be Four people could be a hundred people, uh, which West March's campaign has campaigns have been known to get that big, uh, who all are part of this adventuring guild. And every week, whoever shows up is the party going out on the quest that week. Um, they go out into the West Marches, this undiscovered world, this undiscovered map, and they either discover something of their own or they're on contract with the Adventurers Guild to bring something back, to defeat something, to find some missing persons, your standard type mini quest. They go out. They do that, they discover a little bit of the map in the process, bring back some information, bring back some treasure, and then at the very end of the session, they come back to the home base, they're safe, and life moves on. It's not one big overarching quest line, it's instead basically a series of one-shots, where, again, whoever shows up each week gets to do a one-shot, they get to progress a little bit, they get a little bit of XP, they might level up, and then at the end, it is what it is. I would add that there are also other game systems that cater very well to a varying group of players availability at any given time i'm going to lean on my old my old standby blades in the dark yeah which specifically it says like you know this is sort of meant to be you know you can have your same group every time or the idea for blades in the dark is you are a gang like you are a criminal organization and Whoever is able to make it to any given session, that's who's going out on a heist today. Yeah, it's it's not great when it comes to D&D, I will say. Because, like, n there's basically no modules published that contribute well to a West Marches style campaign or that are modified well. Curse of Strahd is the closest you get, which is what I'm running for Endeavorance and our crew. Um, but it has its problems when it's a West Marches style campaign. And I could go on forever about that. Um, I would just, you know, if you're going to do a West Marches style campaign... 
you might have to stray a little bit into a different system and that's not bad. Or you might have to stray away from published modules and that's not bad. But again, if you just want to play and you're having trouble playing a published module, <laughs> might be your only option. We have another one uh, from someone who describes themselves as Dormant DM, who says, Good day, dear lord and lady of the loom. That is our official title from now on. A friend of mine from a campaign I ran when I was just starting to DM has asked me to run a game for him and five or six of his friends. This is the largest group for me so far, and I only know one or two of them. So how do I go about preparing for or running a session zero for a large group that I don't know anything about? Uh, learn about them. Learn about them through the session zero. If you are putting together a, a campaign for people you don't know, the most important thing is to understand what's okay and what's not. First and foremost, as we've always talked about before on this show, consent. The very first thing you should do is figure out their boundaries. And it might be a little strange to be like, hey, everybody, I know you don't know me, but um, how do you feel about my depictions of sex? A little strange, but that's the point, is to figure out where the stops are. Um, Diana, do you have anything to add here? Yeah, I would say it's mostly the same with like people you do know, you know, and because you should be going through all of those steps with them as well, because you can't really presume to know anything, even about people you've known forever. You can't just assume where the lines are. And we'll have a whole episode on session zeros coming up soon and about safety tools and how you can make sure your players are safe, because if they're not safe, they won't have fun. And if they're not having fun, then your game's going to run itself into the ground. So like it's in your best interest to perform a session zero properly. Uh, and so we'll kind of talk about that in its own dedicated thing here down the road. So stay tuned. But for the most part, it's just as simple as treating them the same as you would your friends or treating your friends the same way you would as strangers is get to know them from the ground up before you run a game for them. Get to know what they like and then form fit your game around that. I think another thing that's really important on the session zero, especially for people who don't know you, is conveying your preferences as well. How you tend to DM, what you look for, what you want from them, what what would make the table the, the best experience for you as well. If the DM isn't also enjoying it, then something is wrong. I will say, like, if I ever do a session zero for, like, a game that I explicitly say is, like, body horror and, like, someone comes up to me and they're like, sorry, I can't do horror at all. I'm like, okay, well, like, there's only so much I can do here. You might want to find a different game. But That's a perfectly, like, if the outcome of a session zero is that a player identifies that they wouldn't be a good fit, that is good. That is a yeah. good thing. It is not ideal. I, I Ideally, everybody's happy. But it's so much better if you can, ahead of time, save them and you the trouble of having gone through everything only to learn after hours and hours of effort and prep that this is not going to work. Yep. Thank you so much, Dormit DM, for your question. And stay tuned for our episode on session zeros and safety tools, because I think that'll help you out a lot on this front. Mm -hmm. All right. So we have one last question here for today from Sean, who writes, all the other complications of creation aside, one of the things that I find myself doing the most of is naming things more than any other exercise in world building. There's locations, factions, spells, etc. It's my favorite part of creating, but everyone runs out of ideas eventually. How do you go about choosing a distinct name? Where do you yoink from? Do you go for more simple general name concepts for recognition? Or do you dig deep into unknown cryptic conventions to kind of evoke mystery and interest? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. So naming is just like, it's my bread and butter. It's what I, it's what I love doing. I love naming shit. I don't know why. It's just, I love it. I usually approach naming something first. I think, is there a, is there a combination of two words that I can cram together that sound good? Uh, one of like steel heart or sap wild or something like that. Like you just take, 
take fun sounding words like single syllable or double syllable words, cram them together. You got yourself a surname, right? You can really reach for words that are like somewhat descriptive of someone's personality or vibe or whatever or of a place. I, I love just cramming words together and reusing them. If that doesn't work, my other my other option is typically uh, reach for like go drill down into some linguistics, find the root word of something associated with whatever you're trying to name. Maybe poke around with a thesaurus, find variations, look at their roots and their influences and either take it wholesale, like find some obscure reference and obscure old world version of something and just use that wholesale or take it and use it as inspiration, tweak a few letters, tweak a few ways that it's change the pronunciation or cram it on the end of another word and you got yourself a witch's brew. Using names to foreshadow is so fun and such a powerful tool, but also be aware of how smart your players are when it comes to things like that. Like if you make your character's last name be just Latin for something that's like very obviously something that will become a part of their character later on, you're going to take away from that reveal if they figure out what's going on and make that connection ahead of time. That being said, you can also use that to play to your favor. So if you have just like a general, like you mentioned, you know, uh, <laughs> descriptor noun type name for a town or something like that. Like the major town in my campaign is called Kingsvale. Mm -hmm. Literally just your standard fantasy name because in the end, that's kind of what you can expect. It's your standard fantasy town. As soon as you step away from that, you start running into more in-depth, complex sounding names that don't entirely give away what's going on. That's when you're like, oh shit, this is where the adventure happens. I mean, I can, uh, I so, can break you right there uh, with Skyrim. Think yeah. about Skyrim town names. Oh, yeah. Riverwood, yep. White Run, mm -hmm. uh, Windhelm. Like, it's literally just taking two words and cramming them together, and it sounds rad. But yeah, if, if all else fails, too, I lean super heavily on Fantasy Name Generator, especially as someone who quite literally yoinks entire storylines and renames everything in those storylines to make them a little less obvious that I've yoinked them. Um, I just mash the random button on fantasy name generator until I find something that sounds relatively nice uh, and a little bit obscure. And then I call it good. So don't be afraid to use that as well. But. There's really, really nothing wrong with that. And I use, yeah. I, I use generators all the time. It, you got to just fill stuff in sometimes. In any case, thank you so much for your question. We greatly appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for our wishes for today. Thank you everyone for your questions. It's always a joy. Send us a wish, wish at the I want to again say that we are both super, super thrilled to be going to PAX East in late March. That is what, March 21st through 24th, I believe? Nailed it, yes. <laughs> in Boston. And Boston is in a Massachusetts, which is, uh, I hear, a place. A place with the worst fucking airport. <laughs> I would take every opportunity to shit on the Boston Logan Airport. Oh my god, that would be a whole bonus episode on its own. Let me fucking tell you. Heathrow has entered the chat. <laughs> I actually liked Heathrow. I had no problems with Heathrow, except for the fucking expensive shit that they had for sale. God damn it. <laughs> That's so, uh, if you're about to board a flight from Boston Logan to Heathrow and you want to just kind of make yourself feel better, a great way to do that would be to head to www.theatlasloom.com where you can sign up to be a Gilded World Weaver. It's five bucks a month to support the show, help us make more fun stuff, and you get access to a whole bunch of bonus content, cut content, behind the scenes, uh, bonus episodes, all that kind of fun stuff. Diana puts in a lot of work to make these. You should come see them. 
It's it's so good. The bonus episodes are so good. It's They're just really like fun. it's us fucking around. I think the most recent one turned into like fifty percent travel podcast, and then like just us talking about your medical plights. And <laughs> it's so good. It's so worth it. Anyway. My name is Endeavorance. You can find everything that I am doing at endeavorance.camp. I'm Endeavorance on TikTok. I stream on Twitch three times a week. We have a pretty dang good time, if I do say so myself. And you can see my very, very good dog in the background of my stream. So that's a good reason to tune on in. Diana, I've never seen any of your content. I don't know who you are. In fact, I don't even know how you got here. If you could clear some of that up for me, I would love to know how to find you online. I don't even know who I am myself. That's a whole that's a whole other question. Uh, my name is Diana Faye, better known as Diana of the Rose on all platforms. I'm mostly on TikTok and Twitch doing a lot of what we do here, which is helping people be a better, you know, TTRPG player, TTRPG game master. And coming up here in 2024, I'm going to be in at least six actual plays. So keep an eye on at Diana of the Rose for more info on those as they come up. Um yeah, I think that's about all we got for you today. Thank you so much for listening in. Our paths will cross again soon, but in the meantime, keep on weaving your worlds. <laughs>